Good morning. My name is Eric Martin. For those, I, I know there's a number of faces that I don't recognize. And so I have been a, a believer for now 17 years. Um, and God saved me in 2000. Uh, I lived uh, just as a uh, kind of cliche, uh, sinful life coming out of college and, and everything. And uh, did not really grow up in a Christian home, had none of that background, and God uh, very specifically um, and thankfully saved me uh, out of all of that and uh, saved me uh, right into a, a good church. And I was at East Valley Bible Church Gilbert, which is now Redemption Gilbert, for about nine months, and then I came over and uh, was part of the church plant that planted this church. Uh, and... I have been eldering, in, I've been serving in various ministries over that time, and I've been eldering, shepherding in this body for going on six years now. So that is a quick little intro to who I am, and I'm just very thankful to be, uh, have been and able to shepherd in this body and get to, to shepherd you guys this morning. You guys have been studying the, the different disciplines, and you know the first and foremost discipline is discipline number one. You know, bringing our hearts before the Lord, shepherding our hearts with God's word, and then the outworking, the overflow of that's going to flow into discipline number two, which is going to be those relationships that are closest around us, going to be into our homes. And then this morning, we're going to be in discipline number three, the ministry, which is a very broad category. And this morning, we're going to take a little slice of that, and we're going to specifically talk about the one another's. This morning, we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about relationships within the local church. And the tool that we're going to use to do that is something called the one another's. If you've been a believer for very long or been around the church for very long, you've probably heard just the term one another's. And you perhaps have even studied the one another's. The one another's are a tool to survey scripture for how we are to practice biblical relationships in the local church. Let me say that again, that one another's are a tool to survey scripture for how we are to practice biblical relationships in the local church. That tiny little phrase, one another, it's a very simple adjective pronoun pair. And in my English translation, the NAS, the one another shows up, that phrase shows up in the New Testament 108 times. And it shows up in 101 different verses. Primarily, there are two Greek pronouns that that English translation is derived from. And some of those 100 verses, 101 verses are simply narrative passages. They're just describing an event or something that's going on. And, uh, for example, in Mark 8, 16, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. That, that's not the kind of what we're trying to get out of the one another's. We're trying to look for the imperatives. We're trying to look for the commands or the expectations that God's word has for believers and how they relate to one another. There are one another's that simply don't apply because, again, they're, you know, they're descriptive. Uh, Matthew 24, 10, betray one another, hate one another. <laughs> Revelation 6, 4, slay one another. We, those are obviously not applicable. <laughs> and so after we filter down through those, uh, after we filter through those to get to the commands, the different expectations that we have, we get down to 59 different verses 
And after putting those and kind of uh, putting those together, we get 38 different one another's. And you should have at the back of your handout, uh, not exactly looks, it doesn't exactly look like this, but it has all of the one another's that we're going to be covering. Well, has all the one another's that I put together, of which we're not going to cover all 38 this morning. I don't have four hours to do that. So, and we'll be referencing this multiple times, so we'll probably keep it handy. Of those, uh, the 38 one another's are found in two different Gospels, Mark and John. They're found in 16 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And the vast majority of the one another's are explicit commands or expectations for believers. And the vast majority of those commands are to be carried out within the local church. Look around at the people that are right around you. Go ahead and look around. <laughs> the people that are in this room, think of your small group. Think of the service tomorrow. Tomorrow when you guys come to church, I want you to look around. This is the local church. This is the body. This is the primary place where those commands are expected to be carried out. And my hope and desire uh, this morning is to provide some familiarity with these one another's. So that they stand out in scripture so that as you guys are reading through your, your, your reading plans, as you're reading through, uh, they just kind of jump out and you can be practicing them or more effectively practicing them within the local body. Specifically because I'm talking about this local body, I'm talking about Grace Bible Church. So that you can be more effectively practicing them here at Grace Bible Church. And my hope after also going through all of this lesson this morning is that you'll see that the obedient Christian, you guys and me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church, within Grace Bible Church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another here at GBC. The one another's are essentially a manual for how biblical relationships are to be carried out here within the local church. And you know, one thing we're not going to do, because I said that this is kind of a sliver of the broad category of the ministry, what we're not going to do is we're not going to pit against uh, these against other passages that talk about believers just generally loving other believers or uh, how we're to love non-believers or just generally our neighbor. Um, all of these passages coexist, and all of them complement one another. Uh, but today we're going to focus specifically on what God's Word has to say uh, about those biblical relationships within the local church. And to actually, on, on this, you'll notice, so all 38 are here, but there's kind of six large categories uh, love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity. So I kind of categorize them a little bit. And so we're going to ask six questions to help us step through these, to step through the different categories. I'm, I'm going to pick a couple passages from each of those categories, and we're going to step through those. And so let's just jump into that. And our first question is, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another. 
the primary and single most important one another is love one another. This command stands over and above all of the others, and it's an umbrella that covers all of the other one another's. All of the other one another's flow out of this one. If you can look at John, turn to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here, the historical context, this is the beginning, or, you know, this is the, the portion of John where he is in the upper room. He's in Jerusalem. He's there with his disciples. This is the, the setting for the Last Supper. This is literally hours away from him going to the cross, from Jesus going to the cross. And specifically in this part, Judas has already left. So it's not 12, it's the 11 now. So it's Jesus and the 11. They're going to be having the Last Supper. And then in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. I want you to see that word love. When you read that word, what do you think that means? Usually the first thing I think of when I think of love, it's the, the emotion, the feelings, the warm affections I have for the people that I know about and care about. And biblical love does include that, but it also includes so much more. A biblical love is one that loves the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a selfless love. It's a self-giving love. And that kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances, where our emotions can be often directly tied to our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love. In this context... It's a verb. It's an active verb. It's a love of action. And this use of love, it's directed towards one another. It's directed towards the, the love that the disciples are to have with one another. And now Jesus provides a new commandment. It's new because it narrows the focus of that love. The disciples are not to simply have a general love of neighbor that's already been established in Matthew 22 here they are to have a love for one another and the one another's here are the 11 you disciples love the disciples love the 11 love each other here and Jesus did not give this command to the crowds he didn't give this command to all those that were even following him he gave it specifically and intimately to the 11, to the ones that he had spent three years developing these close and intimate relationships with. And the disciples are to love one another with a love that is modeled after the love that Christ had for them. That you love one another even as I have loved you. And what kind of love did Christ have for them? He had an unconditional love. These, 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 these 12, these 11, uh, were not the easiest bunch of guys to love. I mean, throughout scripture, we get to see all the different 
human things that they do that we can relate to. Uh, Jesus, his love for them was humble. This is the creator of this massive universe that we can't even see the ends of. And he is the king and he became a man spending three years with these men. Uh, how humble of our, how much humility did our, our king show in doing that? His love was humble. His love was merciful. He did not provide what they deserved. They did not deserve his presence even. His love was gracious. He gave to them and privileged them based on nothing that they have done. They actually often showed the opposite. His love was patient. Regardless of what they did or said, he was patient with them. Jesus' love was self-giving. Jesus' love was selfless. Jesus' love was sacrificial. He loved them when they did not love him. He loved them when he knew that they were just about to abandon him. This is, like I said, this is hours before the cross. And he knew they were going to abandon him. And the results of that love, this love that these disciples are to have with one another, verse 35, the results of them actually carrying out that new commandment to love one another by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have a love for one another. All men will know that they are followers of Christ. That love provides a witness, a testimony to an unbelieving world. And this new commandment that Jesus gave to those disciples, this new commandment is a commandment for us. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. We are to have close, intimate fellow relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out love on them. And the results of that, the results of doing that, our love for one another will stand as a witness to an unbelieving world of who we follow. Our love for one another draws attention to Christ. The love we have and show and demonstrate with one another magnifies the one that we follow. And this love is the outstanding mark of the Christian. Another passage on love one another is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. And in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Here, you know, the first John was written by the Apostle John. It was written to the local churches that were around the area of Ephesus. And in, uh, we'll start reading in verse 10, actually. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because he, we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. In verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. There are a number of points in this passage that John is telling us about the love that we are to have with one another, and some of the results of that. And in verse 10, he who does not love his brother is not of God. Our love for one another is evidence that we're believers. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love for the brethren is evidence that we have been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ being the supreme example. Verse 17, we love one another by providing for the worldly needs of our brethren. When those are in need, we can provide those worldly things, those worldly needs. Verse 18, we love in deed and truth. Our love has action, not simply words, and it's supported by God's word. And verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. We're going to move on to 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, so perhaps it's on the next page. And we're going to start reading there in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10. He loved us when we did not love him. We actually hated him and rebelled against him. That's where our hearts were before he changed them. And... He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent the perfect, sinless one, Jesus, from heaven to earth to become a human, to be born and to live in this fallen, sinful world. And he sent him to be the propitiation. That's a big word that means simply the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. These were not his sins. These were not Jesus' sins. They were our sins. And they weren't everyone's sins. They were for 
the, the sacrifice was applied to his people, his church. And he bore the wrath. He bore the punishment for those sins. For those that did not love him. We did not love him. In verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love, we've covered it a little bit already, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly, providing for our greatest need, our reconciliation, doing that for us, which we were helpless to do. And in light of all of that, what should my love for one another look like? What should my love for one another look like? Well, there needs to be others in my life here at GBC. I need to know what is going on in their lives so that they, so I know how I can love them. I need to be always looking for ways to love them earnestly, consistently. My love needs to be selfless with godly motivations. And everything that I have, all of my resources, my time, my knowledge, my energy, my possessions are the Lord's. All of those resources are the Lord's and they need to be available to love one another. And our love for one another, it may be costly. It may be inconvenient. It may be a sacrifice. Usually when somebody needs that kind of love, usually it's just not even convenient. We live in a, a country where we're ruled by convenience. We love convenience. I love convenience. And this kind of love often is going to be inconvenient. But this is how God wants us to practice loving one another here at Grace Bible Church. And when I said that the love one another, this one another stands above all the others, this one has 14 references. The rest of them have nothing even close to that. This one is so emphasized in Scripture. Um, and that's why that one stands above all the others. Moving on to number two. How does God want us to practice caring for one another? And so on this, on your little reference sheet under care, we have care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, bear with one another, comfort one another, and pray for one another. We're going to go ahead and cover care for one another and found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. The context for this verse is really all of chapter 12. Paul here is addressing, addressing the, the local church found in Corinth. And Paul is dealing with division in the body at the Corinthian church. And this church had many different problems. At the beginning of this epistle, the beginning of this letter, they were having factions over who got baptized by who. Some by Paul, some by uh, Apollos. And Paul is addressing the division within the church now because of spiritual gifts. He's addressing uh, how some had 
certain spiritual gifts and others didn't, and there was strife. There was division that was occurring because of that. And yet Paul is trying to focus on the unity that believers have in the body. They are not individuals, but they're unified for the common good. And these different members of the body are necessary. And so I'm going to start reading actually in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all of the members of the body and all and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now they are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on, the, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. And then here in verse 24, but God so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. God, in verse 24, is the one who composed the body. He is the one who composed it and so that there would be no division. So that there would be, so that the members would have the same care for one another. Paul's contrasting the division of the body with the care for one another. And Paul provides two examples in verse 26 of this unity that we're to have, this suffering and rejoicing. Um, the care for one another, God has composed and brought all of these different members together. And they have different abilities, different resources, different capacities. In the same way that Paul was talking about, you know, the eye and ear, he was talking about the different members of a, a body as an analogy of how he ha God has brought these different members together in this body here at Grace Bible Church. And some have, some have more money, some have more time, some have more knowledge, some have, they have different capacities for, for serving one another. And God brought them all together so that they can actually care, have the same care for one another. And as I think of, you know, I think, as I think of the Dodds um, and how God just in incredible ways has provided for them. God was providing for them before they even knew to ask for it. Um, God provided them a house to live in. Not everybody has the ability to do that. 
And then God provided people that can spend time with them where others don't have the time to spend with them and to serve them in that way. There's different, God has different people different in different places in the body in different circumstances so that they can serve them in different ways. And when we think of uh, in verse 26, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And if one member rejoices, all members rejoice with it. This, for me, this past week was such a contrast. When we had the Dodds, when, when Matt and Cameron were up there telling of what God had been doing and how he had cared for them over these last eight plus weeks uh, and how he had just provided. And to actually see Matt on the stage walking up there, um, when I had spent time with him in the neurological ICU to where he was multiple times close to death um, and he couldn't move any part of his left part of his body, you know, it was... It was encouraging when he could move his thumb like that. And then to see him up there walking, um, that was amazing. And we got to rejoice. We got to rejoice with them, right? And then uh, a couple days later, I found out about Teresa. And it just hurt um, that she has lung cancer. And, you know, we feel that. We feel those things. And not just with Matt and Cameron and, you know, what Jamie was saying, but there's so many different circumstances uh, Currently in this body, God has us in a season of suffering. Um, this is not something that we've had a lot of over the history of our church. Um, and he has us in a season where there are many people that are suffering. And when we hear those things, when we see those things, when we uh, have close uh, relationships with people that are suffering, we feel that. We do feel that. And... When there's rejoicing, when there's new couples that are getting engaged and married and new babies that are being born, we get to rejoice. We get to, we get to have those and we feel those as a body. We get to feel those. God puts different members of the body with different skills and resources, different capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for one another. God doesn't want these divisions or factions. He wants them unified. He wants us unified for that caring caring for those that are suffering, and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. Another way that God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul wrote this letter to the church that is found in the Galatian Galatian region. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The context here, it's dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. To bear means to carry something burdensome, carrying something with endurance. A burden means it's a heavy load, which is difficult to lift or to carry, and Believers in the local church here in Galatia are being called to walk with a fellow believer to help them bear the burden of sin and temptation, ultimately 
to repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens. And we need help. I need help with that. We need help from one another. This is not simply a pastor's job. It is the responsibility of all of us. One of my former pastors uh, said, you are either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. Those are the ways, those, those are two examples of ways that we can practice caring for one another. And we'll move on to our next question. How does God want us to practice edifying one another? How does God want us to practice edifying one another? Let's look at our handout. Under edification, we have build up one another, admonish one another, speak truth to one another, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encourage one another, seek after that which is good for one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're going to first talk about build up one another found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. And this letter was written to the church in Thessalonica. Let's flip on over to uh, Thessalonians. We'll start reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. The context here is dealing with the day of the Lord. And there were believers, they were having questions about these things and concerns about when the day of the Lord was going to take place. And so Paul proceeds to encourage them and to build them up. And he explains, he does this by explaining truth to these believers. He, he does this by explaining truth about believers. They are not in darkness. They're not overtaken. They're not destined for wrath. They're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light, sons of the day. Therefore, since for unbelievers there's wrath, and therefore since for believers there is no wrath, encourage one another, build up one another with these truths. Paul was building up these believers with truth. This assumes uh, a couple things. One, that we're familiar with truth. Discipline number one. We're shepherding our hearts, and our hearts are being 
affected by the truth that we're reading. It also assumes that we are in close communication with believers, that we spend time with them so that we can build them up. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. Please turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, and some translations may say instruct, is the word nutheteo, which may seem familiar to some of you who are familiar with the nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling, that's where that, that comes from. And it simply means to counsel about avoidance or secession from an improper course of conduct, to admonish, to warn, to instruct. But this instruction is not simply for gaining knowledge sake. It is instruction with the specific purpose of having someone avoid or cease doing something. This is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to stop. Or something that they need to avoid. And, we're, and we are to do this with one another. And Paul here, uh, with the Roman church, he's affirming that these believers are able to do this. They're able to go to one another and to, to lovingly step into somebody's life and warn them. To instruct them about avoiding something or ceasing to do something. And again, all believers bear this responsibility to admonish one another. This is, again, not just something that elders do, that deacons do. This is something that we all bear the responsibility to do. It's something that we're commanded to do, all of us. And as Paul affirms here, that these were believers were equipped to do so, as you guys are also equipped to do so. With as little or as much as we know, if, if we're in God's word and we know any of it, we have the ability to be able to take that and step into somebody's life. And likely, none of us wants to be confrontational. We, we want to, to be likable. We want to be winsome. We like to be encouraging. But if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what is the most loving thing that we can actually do? We can shed light on it. We can expose it. We can lovingly admonish them for it. If we are in sin, if we're blinded to our sin, if we're, if our hearts are hard to sin, what do we want somebody, how do we want somebody to tell us about that? How do we want somebody to step into our lives and admonish us for that? Lovingly, winsomely. But we want somebody to do that because our sin is affecting our relationship to the Lord. And it's going to be affecting our relationships with others. And we need to do that. Those are two ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. Let's go on to the next question, number four. How does God want us to practice being humble with one another? Again, our little reference sheet here under humility. Give preference to one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. 
Confess your sins to one another. Be humble toward one another. We're going to talk about give preference to one another found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, if you can flip on over there. This, uh, again, is uh, as Paul was writing to the church in Rome. And this specific, specific section of Romans here found in chapter 12 has 25 exhortations for believers. And the section that our verse actually falls in is dealing primarily with family relationships, specifically the family of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, the last part of that. Give preference to one another in honor. Some translations may say outdo one another in showing honor. This giving preference or outdo means to do with eagerness, to do exceedingly, to lead the way, to go before, to proceed or precede, to prefer. And honor means high, high respect, high esteem. And all of this is to show a genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. We are to go before. We're to be proactive in giving <laughs> honor. We're to be showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We're quick to show respect. We're quick to show admiration. We're quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. We're quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. What would be some reasons why we wouldn't be quick to do those things? It would be my pride. I'm thinking more about myself than I am thinking about others. And so I don't see that, to acknowledge that, to uh, appreciate that in others. It takes humility to get outside of ourselves to see others at all, let alone first. But we are to see the others first. Another way God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another. Let's flip on over to James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess your sins to one another. Confess simply means to make an admission of wrongdoing or sin. We're admitting something. And we're commanded to do this continually. We're commanded to do this continually with one another. This is not something we desire to do. Sin wants to stay hidden. It wants to stay private. It wants to stay secret. And when you mix in other sins like our pride, we often run away from confession or we're so vague in it that it really is meaningless. God wants my sin and your sin exposed. And he wants it dealt with. And he wants it dealt with in a loving, in the loving fellowship of other believers. We need to be in close relationships to humbly practice this one another. Number five, how does God want us to practice serving one another? Back over to our little reference under service, there's serve one another, 
Be hospitable to one another. Wash one another's feet. We're gonna the first one we're gonna do is serve one another, found in first Peter chapter four, verse ten. First Peter four verse ten. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve one another. And that that word for serve is diakoneo, which is the same word that we get. It's where we get the word deacon from. Uh, the, the office of deacon here in the church. And that word simply means uh, personal service, the discharge of a loving service. In, in Greek culture, this word had the meaning of waiting tables. So kind of a, a lowly kind of service. And for the Greeks, service was looked down upon. It was looked down upon as undignified. Uh, not an uncommon thing for Greeks to say is we are born to rule, not to serve. Our service to one another is out of love for one another. And it can be a very humbling thing. It can also be very exhausting. And as we serve one another, pouring out ourselves for one another, we're serving, and in verse 11, by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our loving service to and for one another is not about us. It's all about the other person, and it's all done in God's strength, and it's all done for God's glory. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is to wash one another's feet. Found in John thirteen fourteen. So the context again here is, you know, as we started off, this is uh, during the Last Supper. It's in the upper room. It's uh, right before Jesus. It's hours before Jesus is going to go into the cross. And he's there with the disciples. And here he's also there with Judas. This is before Judas left. So all 12 of them are present. And we'll start reading in, uh, we'll start reading in verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which was, with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, or so he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, 
What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not just my feet, but also wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to, to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Dirt was everywhere in Israel. Uh, it was not uncommon for dirt to the dirt and dust to even be like an inch thick, that kind of dust. And when it rained, what did that turn into? A mess. And uh, they were wearing sandals, and you know their feet are going to get dirty, right? And at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that everyone that would come in would be able to wash their feet. Uh, and for a slave, the most menial task that was that they were given was to wash the feet of the guests as they were coming in. So they would, you know, for those that had slaves, they would be able to have them there to, to greet the people and to wash their feet before they came in. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived, they were in the upper room and there, there was no slave. And one of the 12 should have offered to do this. One of the 12, or multiple of them, had opportunity to wash one another's feet, to wash Jesus' feet. But the 12 were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Luke, from Luke chapter 22, verse 24, uh, tells us that they were arguing about who was the greatest, which one of them was. They were being too, they were too busy being selfish and thinking about their perceived greatness to see the humble service that needed to be done. So Jesus, the God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who had already humbled himself, uh, just in being in human form on the earth, took another step even lower. Jesus, by his example, <coughs> displayed incredible, humble service to do to the disciples what they were not willing in that moment to do for themselves. And he provided that example of what they were to do in a like manner with each other. The Lord provided an example of humble service. And we are to get low and we're to provide and we're to follow that humble example as we serve one another. We don't exactly have the same dirty feet problem that they had back then. But there are plenty of menial, humble tasks that need to be done. In ways that we can serve one another, there are going to be many opportunities to care for one another that nobody's even going to see. The most humble kind of task is one that people aren't going to see and they aren't going to notice. But you know who does notice? The Lord, 
in, in all things. He is, for, he is our primary audience in all things. Everything that comes out of our mouth, he's our primary audience. Everything that we do, he is our primary audience. And even though nobody else sees it, nobody else notices it, the Lord knows. And he is ultimately the one we're trying to please. And we get to serve one another, love one another um, in those humble ways, using Christ as our example in that way. So those are ways that God wants us to practice serving one another. Number six, how does God want us to practice being unified with one another? Let's look back at our reference. Under unity, there's be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another, greet one another, wait for one another, do not consume one another, let us not challenge one another, let us not envy one another, show tolerance for one another, do not lie to one another, live in peace with one another, do not speak against one another, do not complain against one another, and fellowship with one another. The first one we're going to talk about is be devoted to one another, also found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. on over to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations, instead of saying devoted, may say love, but this isn't the same kind of love that we've been talking about in general. This, this, the Greek word behind devoted here means the natural love that occurs within the family. This is a kindred love, warm affections. It could be translated lovingly loving. And the, the, the word behind the brotherly love, there is a word that I know that you actually all know. Philadelphia, like the city. That word literally means... Uh, Love of brother or sister. I mean, the, the city is called the city of brotherly love because that's the, what the word means. Um, it's the love of a blood relative. It's the affection, the tender, kind, caring, concerned uh, feelings and affections that we have for a family member. And when you put that all together, you get be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. <laughs> and that's why translators don't do that. <laughs> Thankfully. And uh, believers are to be devoted to each other, having those affections, that love for one another, that are reserved for our relatives, for our family, for our, our immediate family, our brothers and sisters, parents, children. And here Paul applies that to Christians. He applies that to the family of God. And brothers, believers are brothers and sisters. We have one father and we are children of God. We are family in Christ. There are things that I'll do and say to a close family member that I wouldn't say to do with just a close friend. And, and how much unity are we to have within the family that God has ordained? Uh, the husbands and wives and parents and brothers and sisters, that's the relationship that we're to have with one another here at GBC, within the local church. We're commanded to have those warm, familial affections for one another here at Grace Bible Church. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to not judge one another. 
It's found in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 14, the context it is uh, dealing with conscience. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul is addressing in this chapter, one dealing with food and the other dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than the others. There's weak believers, there's strong believers. The strong believers can have an attitude of contemptuous superiority. And the weak believers have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These are, er these are issues in the area of Christian liberty and practice. They are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. What these people are doing with regard to food and regard to the day these things are not explicitly commanded or forbidden in Scripture. They are personal preference. They are based on historic tradition, not doctrinal or moral compromise. God, specifically here, has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. And if God himself doesn't make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to make an issue of those things? That doesn't mean that we don't talk about our preferences. That doesn't mean that we don't, but what it does mean is we don't hold our preferences as though they were principles. And we don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. And we don't regard them with contempt. The believers here, why, you know, in... Uh, Verse 10, why do you regard your brother with contempt? These were divisive things. They were using them to divide the body. They're not to be divisive. They were preferences. And in doing so, in not judging one another in those ways, those are ways that we can be unified. And that's another way that we can practice being unified with one another is to not judge each other's preferences. 
We've investigated six different questions, how God wants us to practice biblical relationships in the local church, here specifically at GBC. Here's a few more questions to think about. After having breezed through all of this, can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one be obediently practicing the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? We all live in America and in this country, you know, this country is very consumeristic and we are all impacted and we can't get away from it. Given that, it can be very easy to bring a consumeristic view into the, the church. And it's common to only focus on what I get out of a relationship, a Bible study, a small group, or even a worship service. It, it, I judge uh, how well something went solely based on how I felt and what I got out of it. And that's a view of relationships within the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers here at GBC. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another. And here at GBC, the primary vehicle that we have for practicing these biblical relationships is small groups. We understand that when we come together on a worship service on Sunday mornings, that you aren't going to get to interact in the same ways and for a long enough time to have those close, intimate relationships. I mean, we've covered all these different one another's that require, you know, those close relationships that require an intimacy that just really can't be had only on Sunday mornings. And so the vehicle that we have for kind of breaking that up and having that happen throughout the week uh, and weeks uh, are small groups. And these are smaller groups of believers here at GBC that, that we can carry out those and foster those more intimate relationships where you can get to know people better and they can get to know you better as well. So that was a kind of a bit of a fire hose and that was not even all 38. Uh, and so let's go ahead and uh, pray. Um, and if you guys have any questions about any of this, uh, yes, Janet. Um, Lori had to leave yes. because David has bacteria in his blood and they have to take him to emergency room. Okay. Well, I will definitely pray for that as we close. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to open your word. Your word is powerful and it has authority and it has authority over and in our lives. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for one another. Thank you for the believers that are uh, in my life that come alongside me, that bear my burdens, that uh, I get to serve and care for. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, these women here this morning as they have interacted with your word. Lord, I do pray uh, that we would all walk away from this uh, and it would bear much fruit. Lord, I pray for little David as he is, uh, as you have him and Jacob and Kiki in this trial. 
Lord, I pray specifically for the bacteria in his blood, Lord, that you would give the doctors wisdom as they go to care for him, that you would heal him uh, from this uh, from uh, this specific uh, bacteria. Lord, and even more than that, Lord, we want you to cure him from the cancer that he has. And whatever means you would use to do that, uh, Lord, we know and we trust you. We trust that you are good and we trust that uh, for believers that you carry out uh, all things happen for good for those who love you. Jesus, we want to see you magnified. We want to see made much of you. And we want to take this testimony and this good news to an unbelieving world and that you would use broken, imperfect, sinful instruments to do so. And that's us. Jesus, thank you for your grace and mercy. And it is in your great name we pray. Amen.